Good morning. Let's turn to John chapter 11, the Gospel of John chapter 11. Today should be the last time you hear me say that. I had lost track of how many weeks we had been in John 11, and I put uh, on the computer and what I had actually sent up to the uh, projection for the slides and all uh, the wrong week. It wasn't the, this isn't the fourth week, this is the fifth week in uh, John chapter 11, so... But I can, I can honestly say it's the fifth and last week, okay? Which means the next time we're going to, when I say open to John, it's going to be 12. So, so you'll know. John chapter 11, of course, the majority of the, of the chapter has to do with the, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And uh, so that now has happened and uh, we come now to the last section, the last portion of this, of this chapter that keeps us there in the very same area where Lazarus was, was raised in Bethany, but moves on into Jerusalem. The focus now becomes the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of uh, Israel and of the temple in finding out what has happened with this great, great miracle of the raising of Lazarus. We're told in verses 45 and 46, Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him, but some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Shall we pray? Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word and your spirit. And certainly today we want to study your word in in light of your spirit, in light of that which you would have us to understand and to know from this passage. We do open our hearts to you, Lord God. We pray that uh, you will speak to us in our minds and in our hearts and that we will be encouraged to trust and to stand on your word always, especially in these last days. And we give you thanks and praise that your word is still true and will always be. In Jesus' name, amen. In the account that uh, we read and studied concerning the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus' friend Lazarus, what can only be considered to this point as the greatest and most significant of the Lord's signs and miracles simply because of its testimony of Jesus' power over death and proving that he was certainly the Messiah who had come into the world to bring deliverance not only to Israel but to fulfill God's promise to Abraham of blessing all nations, well, we would surely think that a sign of of this magnitude 
would have touched the most hard-hearted enemy of Christ to realize that Emmanuel, God with us, was truly among them. But there's another truth to consider. If people are determined to resist the truth that they can actually see before their eyes because their consciences remain dead and not awakened by such a marvelous occurrence, then the truth is not even supernatural miracles will win them to Jesus. I would encourage you to read the story that Jesus told of the rich man and a certain beggar interestingly named Lazarus. You find that story in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. The rich man died and went to hell, and there he lifted up his eyes to see Abraham afar off with this beggar Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. After praying to Abraham to send Lazarus to him with his finger dipped in water to soothe his uh, thirst and cool his tongue, which of course was impossible, he asked him to send Lazarus to his father's house to testify to his five brothers so they wouldn't end up where he was. Well, let's pick up the story there in verse 29 of Luke 16. Because there Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Now remember, he's speaking to a man who had been rich all of his life, so therefore his brothers were probably very rich as well, and had everything they ever wanted in life. And he says, If you really want to save them, well, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Now what's interesting is that up to this point, there were two who would be raised from the dead. Lazarus and Jesus. I know that there were others later on. And there were some before who were raised in a different way. But nonetheless, these two, dead, buried, and resurrected. But what a serious and an ominous truth this is. That even signs and wonders and miracles performed by the Son of God, who himself would be raised from the dead, would never reach the hardest hearts, and bring them to repentance simply because people are determined to go their own way and not bow to the testimony of God's word. That is an amazingly sad truth. But that is what we'll see in this final portion of chapter 11, following the reaction by those who were there to see Lazarus, the brother of Martha and Mary, raised from the dead by Jesus. And of course, there were those who did believe on Jesus, as we saw in verse 45. But there were obviously others who were gripped with a stubborn and determined unbelief, despite the most powerful evidence exhibited by the Lord himself. They not only ignored the evidence and avoided the issue of Christ's demand for belief, 
But they lost their opportunity to see the glory of God. Now that would be those that are mentioned in verse 46. Now some would say that if you look at verse 46, maybe some of them actually believed and maybe just wanted to let the uh, Pharisees know uh, what had happened. And and, uh, so they they might have been uh, sincere in, uh, in, in their wanting just to let them know what had happened. But it's really clear when you look at the language of this passage in verses 45 and 46 that John is giving us a distinction. A distinction of those who believed and of those who did not believe. But they did not see the glory of God. And remember what Jesus said to Martha, you know, did I not tell you that if you believed that I could raise it from the dead, that you would see the glory of God. So I brought back to mind the words of Jesus in John three thirty six: He that believeth on the Son has everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Or what we read last time as well, John eight twenty four: I said therefore unto you that you shall die in your sins, for if you believe not that I am he, or that I am, you shall die in your sins. So once again, we see the, 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 the very seriousness of believing or not believing. The consequences of not believing. The blessings of believing. So as we enter into this last section of chapter 11, we find that it begins kind of with a plot. A plot that is... Beginning, uh, beginning to uh, form itself in verses 47 and 48. Let's look at those two verses. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. I want to encourage you to focus on a couple of different words here. First of all, in verse 47, focus on the fact that they say, This man doeth many miracles. That's a confession. So underline many miracles. And then in verse 48, underline the word all when they say all men will believe on him. But the most important word to underline would be the word in the last phrase, the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. Circle or underline the word our. That's a key word here. So the plot actually began with a problem. And Jesus was the religious leader's problem. What was gathered after the news was delivered was a council that was made up of the Sanhedrin, the supreme governing body of the Jews, made up of 71 men, which consisted of these members, the 71, and the chief priests, and that included the high priest, the captain of the temple, and members of the leading families of priests. Now, what we know from the Gospels, <coughs> excuse me, and other historical records is that the majority of the Sanhedrin were Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. While there were still influential Pharisees in the group who did believe, 
in the resurrection of the dead. It's important to note that the Sadducees uh, were more of the political arm of, of, of leadership in, 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 the, uh, uh, in the nation of Israel, uh, but they were also the most liberal when it came to everything. Uh, they only believed in the, in the Torah. They only believed in the first five books of the, of the scriptures because they believed that there was nothing mentioned of resurrection in those five books. So they were very strongly opposed to any thought of, of the resurrection from the dead. The Pharisees, on the other hand, believed the word of God, at least uh, initially when they formed some 200 years before the birth of Christ on the earth. Uh, but of course, by the time of Jesus, uh, the Pharisees had become pretty much just, uh, you know, going through the motions of, of uh, religious practice. And so even though they believed in the word of God, you know, believing and doing were, were two different things. So we get a little bit of a picture of, of this council in the, uh, that was made up, you know, for this, uh, for this problem that they had. So this is where the plot thickens until it sickens. So first off, they could not deny that Jerusalem was abuzz with excitement because the news was certainly getting around that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and there were a number of witnesses to this event. This proved to be a crisis situation for the religious leaders. And this is the reason why there in verse 47, they asked the question, what do we? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? I mean, this was a, I mean, this was self-reproach at its best. Self-reproach. Condemning themselves for all of their earlier inaction when it came to taking care of this itinerant preacher, miracle worker named Yeshua. Kicking themselves. We should have done something sooner. Now think about what Jesus did. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He was doing pretty good things. But, was, but it was getting under their skin because it was challenging something about them. As we'll see in just a moment. But what is most significant is that they had long ago decided that they wanted no part of a person claiming to be the Messiah who exhibited no respect for the ruling religious establishment. So where, does, where did this guy come from? You know, they used to get on Jesus because he was from, he was from Nazareth, you know. Is there anything good that can come out of Nazareth? So they're, they're like thinking in this, you know, I mean, this is just some kind of upstart that just comes up. We've been around a long time. And it brought to mind this thought. Gee, what came first? The chicken or the egg? Are you aware of that question? What came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, let's, let's frame it in, in terms of what we're reading here today. Who came first? The religious ruling establishment of Israel or the creator of the heaven and the earth? And this Messiah happened to be the creator of the heaven and the earth. And so their first and major dilemma was that this radical miracle worker would eventually establish himself in power and they would be swept from office. 
So you see, they were more concerned with their standing as religious and civil leaders than they were with their standing before God. I hate to say that that's the way it is in some parts of the church today. People are more concerned about their, their, their position in the church. I mean, there are those denominations where they have all of the robes and all the garbs and all the, you know, accoutrements for the, you know, uh, what they consider their rites and rituals. But there's still people in positions in churches where to them, I mean, that the, what their word is, is the last word, which is totally against the scriptures. Because we're in the ministry, we're not in any position to do that. As leaders, as pastors, as elders, as deacons in the church, we're, we're called to be servants. The Lord takes care of us through the understanding of how we all are to give according to the word of God, but God takes care of us. And we move as God leads us. It's not the person. It's the Lord that matters. So when you think about it, these religious leaders should have been rejoicing and receiving him as their Messiah because he fit all of the qualifications. Born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, The things that he said, he said with authority. The things that he did, he did with power. Who else could he be? They should have been rejoicing and receiving him as Messiah. They should have recognized and acknowledged his many miracles. By the way, remember many miracles? That was their words. Those were their words. They should have recognized and acknowledged his many miracles and his great teaching. Teaching so great that all were about to follow him. By the way, remember, all was their word. But these religious leaders were actually taking the lead in rejecting and opposing Jesus. The basic reason for their unbelief and opposition was selfish fear. Selfish fear. The fear of losing something. Losing their esteem, losing their recognition, their prestige, their image, their acceptance, not to mention their following. They had a grip on the people. The people would see them. How many times did Jesus talk about the fact that, you know, look at these Pharisees. They go out into the streets and they pray all of these loud prayers where everybody can look at him and say, oh my, what a holy man that is. And Jesus said, but that's, they just got their reward. You, when you pray, you go into your closet and you pray unto the Lord and the Lord hears you and he'll bless you and reward you eternally. Add add to all of this their place, their position, their influence, their authority. All of that would lead to security, comfort, and wealth. They had it made as long as Jesus was out of the picture.
But I'm sure that they, they were also aware of many of the things that Jesus had been preaching out in the countrysides and even in the city of Jerusalem whenever he was there for the, for the festivals that required the men to be there in, in the city. That at times he would, they, they, they would have to have heard Jesus say, as he did in Luke twelve fifteen, and he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. That's not what our lives are all about. <clears throat> which would lead a, another Pharisee later on, a man named Shaul, Saul of Tarsus, who would later be named Peter, or I'm sorry, Paul, they be named Paul. Paul, and, and Paul would write to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 and 10, when he said, But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Consider that when Jesus comes along and demands that a man change by denying himself and giving all he has and is to be a disciple of the living and true God and to meet the desperate needs of a lost and starving world, unregenerate, unrepentant man will reject and oppose Jesus. And always will at every step. Think of the things that Jesus said, both in the, in the, in the context of, 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 of overall what God is going to do when we surrender our lives to him as disciples and what we are called to do to those who are in great need. For example, Luke 9, verses 23 through 25, and he said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. What is the cross here? It is a symbol of dying to self. Take up his cross daily and follow me, for whosoever will save his life shall lose it. If all you want to do is save your life in this world and in this, and, and, and in this time and in this uh, uh, financial and economic way, you're going to lose it. All things come to an end. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. Because you're saving it not for this life, but for eternity. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? And then think of the words of Jesus in Luke 12, 33 and 34, where he says, sell that you have. And give alms. Provide yourselves bags which wax not old. A treasure in the heavens that faileth not. Where no thief approacheth. Neither moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is. There will your heart be also. Give to those in need. We give ourselves to the Lord. 
And we realize that whatever it is that we do have still belongs to him. And we're given the the opportunity to bless those who are the unblessed for whatever reason. So Jesus became their major dilemma. But the second dilemma was just as major. It was the danger from the Romans. The Roman government had given the Sanhedrin considerable leeway in handling domestic issues in the country, but especially religious issues. And this is, by the way, in the the thinking of the Sanhedrin, the Romans would surely be suspicious of a Messiah of and for Israel claiming to be the king of the Jews. Now, I'm going to get a little ahead of myself and let you know that, uh, you know, the, the high priest was actually, uh, at this time, chosen by the Romans, not so much by themselves. It was more of a political position. This is the reason why we'll, we'll see later on that there were actually two named chief or, or high priests. That during the trial of Jesus, we'll get to that later, but... But the point of the matter is, you know, the Romans will, would, would allow the Sanhedrin to co- control certain religious issues within the people. But if it started to get a little bit out of hand politically, uh, then they would feel the pressure of it from the Romans themselves. So if they have somebody going around calling themselves Messiah for Israel, that's also claiming themselves to be the king of the Jews. Well, the Romans would certainly take note. So if they made a move against Jesus, in other words, the Sanhedrin... If the Sanhedrin made a move against Jesus, on, on the one hand, they faced the possibility of a popular national uprising from the people who were following the Lord at the time, especially in view of the amazing miracle that had just taken place. And up to this point, Jesus had had many followers, and at one point he, he lost a lot of followers back in John chapter 6. Then he had many followers later, and then he had, you know, uh, this, this, these things happened when he, when he came into Jerusalem and so on and so forth. So now we, we realize that before he goes to, to, uh, uh, to raise Lazarus from the dead, he's really off with his disciples in, in, in the other side of the Jordan, a good 20, 20 miles away. But now he comes back into the area of Jerusalem and, and, and he raises Lazarus from the dead. Many, many uh, uh, witnesses of, of this event now are going around spreading these things. It makes you wonder how there could have been such a great crowd of people later on laying down the palms as Jesus enters in on the foal of of a donkey into the city of Jerusalem. So if they had made a move against Jesus, then they faced, first of all, the possibility of that uprising especially in view of of what had had taken place and they knew that there had been other miracles see it wasn't just that miracle but there were there were many others and the Sanhedrin never got a hold listen carefully to this the Sanhedrin never got a hold of the fact that Jesus primary mission was spiritual and and until his spiritual kingdom was established in the heart of his people He had no intention of setting up a material, physical kingdom until, of course, much later. 
But if they did nothing to put a stop to Messiah's unwanted activities, the Romans would definitely intervene. And that's what the Sanhedrin did not want. Again, notice what they said, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place, and in effect what they're saying is our place and our nation. The key word is our. How blindly yet arrogantly bold to claim what belonged to God as theirs. The place was more than likely the temple. And certainly inclusive would be the, the whole of the city of Jerusalem because that is where the Lord said, in Zion would be my house. The nation was, of course, Israel, but the nation was what they believed to control as their own. So the presence of Christ was a real threat to the Jewish religious leaders. But something follows the initial reaction of the Sanhedrin. The high priest would now make a very unusual decision. So we look now to the prophecy that is here in John 11, verses 49 through 52. And it says, And one of them, named Caiaphas. Now the word Caiaphas means Dal in, 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 in one language. and uh, In another uh, form, Caiaphas means good-looking. Go figure. Okay. And one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that's that, that same year, said unto them, You know nothing at all. Isn't he a nice guy? I mean, he's saying that to all of his Sanhedrin guys, you know. You know nothing at all. Nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. Now John steps in and says, And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied, listen, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. And not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. So after listening to the discussion that was taking place, oh, what are we going to do? The high priest Caiaphas chimed in with his own counsel. But before we deal with that, let's consider his position. Because Caiaphas was appointed high priest in 18 AD by the Roman prefect Valerius Gratus and continued in that position until 36 AD. So he was there a pretty good, pretty good while, 18 years as, as it were, which was a lot different than a lot of the other high priests who were appointed during that time and before, uh, maybe for anywhere from three to four years average. And then the Romans would, would change the high priest, which was totally against the law of, of the priesthood, you know, so that wasn't even being followed. But uh, he was the son-in-law of Annas, who had been high priest from six uh, A.D. to 15 A.D., but continued to exert much power within the nation of Israel many years later. And we will meet both of them later, of course, at, at the trial of Jesus. But aside from the person of Caiaphas, we are made aware of his pride. 
We are made aware of his pride in his statement to his colleagues, you know nothing at all. Now John points out in the original language that Caiaphas used a double negative for emphasis. (laughs) So what he was really saying was, you guys really don't know nothing. So you English teachers out there know that that's not proper language. You guys really don't know nothing. And he said it emphatically. But here was the voice of a dastardly, contemptible politician who was as much as an unbeliever could ever be in a position of religious leadership. Now that's scary. Since there is much of that going on in the visible Christian church today. So much of the church, it's, it's, a, it's, it's sad, it's, it's burdensome that so much of the church has turned political. And in, and in laying aside the word of God, they turn to certain political views and functions and, and, and beliefs and, and philosophies that, in fact, lead the people astray. They become hierarchical. There's a hierarchy to follow. And if they do anything, they condemn those who love God's word. I'll speak more about that in a moment. But now consider for a moment that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, here's this guy, Caiaphas, who is not a believer. He's unregenerate. He's probably reprobate. Yet, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we are made aware by the prophecy given that Caiaphas was about to say more than even he really knew. And don't forget, God God spoke in time past through a donkey. And he even spoke through the, the poor, bad prophet Balaam. And sometimes I get Balaam and the donkey confused. (laughs) But while he was speaking out of complete selfishness, because think about where his heart was when he's telling the Sanhedrin these things. While he's speaking out of complete selfishness, what he proposed in a much higher sense than he could have ever comprehended was to expedite and work out the purpose of God in the redemption of Israel as well as the whole needy world. Caiaphas wasn't aware that God was using him in spite of himself as a prophet. He thought he was just being a politician. But how interesting that Caiaphas spoke what was in his evil heart, but prophetically he pronounced the national and global benefits of Christ's death. That is exactly what he said. He says, you know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us. It is beneficial for us. That one man should die for the people. Do you understand how he said it? Do you understand how he said it? From an evil heart? One man should die for the people. And that the whole nation perish not. You understand how he said it? 
But do you understand how God meant it? Okay. Our old Pharisee of the Pharisees, Paul, also would come to grips with this understanding. When he writes to the church in Ephesus, and in particular writing to the Gentiles who had come to the Lord. Now there are distinctions, by the way, and we could talk about this in another study, but there are distinctions between Jews, Gentiles, and there's a third category. You all know what it is? The church. Because the church is made up of both Jew and Gentile. Three different categories. Okay. But it still comes to this understanding that Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 18, said this. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are made nigh or near by the blood of Christ. Do you know what he just said there? Speaking to those who had been Gentiles, Gentile unbelievers, but were now believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, he was saying, you who were far off have been made near. You've been brought near. What is that similar to? That's similar to what John explains in verse 52 of our text when he says, and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. The same idea is those who are afar off. Do you get the picture? For he is our peace, verse 14. For he is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us, between the Jew and the Gentile. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, in other words, the hostility that caused this. Even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man. Twain means two. To make in, uh, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, peace between the Jew and the Gentile, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, that's the church, having slain the enmity thereby, slain the hostility, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, scattered abroad, and to them that were nigh, the Jews, near to the word of God. For through him, we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. What an amazing prophecy Caiaphas gave. He didn't even know what he was saying. But because he was high priest, you see that emphasis? He was high priest. And the high priest, God at any moment could use to speak to a people, his people. But out of all of this now came a plan. They hadn't had a plan before. Now they have a plan. Consider, if you will, verse 53, and we'll read on to the end. Then from that day forth, they took counsel together for to put him to death. See how many times before, you know, Jesus would say something and they would get all riled up. And what would they do? They'd go pick up stones. Let's stone him, you know. 
And Jesus would escape. He was a great escape artist. Boom, and he'd be gone, you know. But you know why? Because it wasn't his time. But now there's a plan. From that day forth, they took counsel together for to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, walked no more openly among the Jews. Was he afraid? No, it just wasn't time. He'll be back in Jerusalem. But he went thence unto a country near to the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. <clears throat> and the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand. What that is telling us is we're getting close now to the death of Jesus. The Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And then sought they for Jesus, and spake among themselves as they stood in the temple. What think ye, that, that he will not come to the feast? Boy, I tell you, word got around, didn't it? Good news, fake news. It was all out there, too. A lot of uh, chatter. And now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment. That if any man knew where he were, he should show it that they might take him. If you know where Jesus is, let us know. It, It was equivalent to Jesus' picture being in the post office. Top 10 most wanted. And Jesus was at the top of the list. As I said, their previous attempts to kill Jesus were spur of the moment events at best. But now they were beginning their plotting and their planning. Sadducees and Pharisees. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Plotting to destroy the one thing or the one person, as it were, that's getting in the way of their prosperity. Jesus went back to his private ministry with his disciples for a time. In reality, a short time. He shifted his emphasis from signs to quiet, intimate times, conversations, messages, sermons with his disciples. Reducing his travel, but preparing his disciples for his soon departure. There were times when Jesus would just tell them, this is what's going to happen to me. I'm going to be taken, arrested. I'm going to be tried. And I'm going to be taken to the cross. And I'm going to be killed. And I'll be buried. But on the third day, I'm going to rise from the dead. You know, when Jesus started telling them this, they were kind of looking at him like, okay. 
they, they weren't really sure if he was being metaphoric, metaphorical or, or if he was really just telling, you know, they were just kind of, oh, yeah. He told, you know, told a lot of parables. Maybe he's telling us a parable. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Then he would tell them again. And then it started sinking in. And then came the weight of the truth. This is all happening in this short amount of time. He's preparing them for his departure. So we headed to this place called Ephraim, which is about 12 to 15 miles north of Jerusalem until Passover. But the word was out. Jesus was at the top of that hit list of the Sanhedrins. And the people who were seeking after Jesus, they were told that if they happened to know where he was, they were to let them know. You know, we live in very dangerous times. Of course, we know that from the scriptures. Perilous times. The the reality is that... uh, None of us can really hide from anything or anybody uh, with, with all of this technology that we have and all of this Wi-Fi and wired up here and wired up there. You know, we're, we're uh, GPSed here and GPSed there. You know, we're, we're just, uh, we, we, it's just, we just find it hard to hide. So, when anybody really wants you, they can find you. But they couldn't find Jesus until he made himself known. But I think the saddest thing about this whole issue, this whole thing that we're looking at today with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin planning, plotting the death of Jesus. The ones who should not have been the most opposed, but should have been the most rejoicing of all, that the Messiah had finally come. Brings to mind again where we are in this whole picture. We're living in times right now where the biggest opposition to the true church of Jesus Christ is not Islam, even though it's pretty high up there. But it's not Islam. And it's not the godless humanists, atheists, that try to attack the truth of the gospel every opportunity that they can get. No, the biggest opposition to the true church of Jesus Christ are the many in the visible church itself that fight against those who stand up for the gospel of Jesus Christ and who stand up for the word of God. Those who, like us here in this room today, are here because we want to know what God's word says to us because it is more relevant today than it's ever been. We have trusted the very fact that 
So many prophecies today have pointed to the times in which we live with amazing accuracy. But whether it's the emerging church that has decided to put aside the word of God to embrace all kinds of religions and other ideas from other people because, you know, we ought to, we ought to be open and, and, and certainly um, accepting of everybody and everybody's thoughts, even though the scriptures tell us there's only one truth. Or some form of highly reformed denominational ecclesiastical church that has taken a liberal position aside from the truth of the gospel the differences are becoming clear. The differences have become very clear. For example, we say that Jesus is the only way. They say that he's one of many ways. See what happens when you put the Bible aside? When you put the truth of the gospel aside? Again, we say he, Jesus is the only way. They'll say, well, he's one of many ways. We say that the Bible is the word of God from Genesis to Revelation. They say the Bible just contains the word of God. Some of it is true. Other parts of it are not. We say that Jesus has promised to come. And to return and to gather his church, his people, to himself. They say all prophecy has already been fulfilled. So where's the truth? The truth continues to lie in the word of God. You put it aside. You turn yourself to fables and untruths, the real fake news. I would ask you, please do not be fooled. Please do not be fooled. If you ask of God anything, ask him for the gift of the discerning of spirits. Because that's a gift that's given to the church. And we actually should all ask for that. The gift of discernment. Discerning the spirits of the times. And then realize that we are truly in, in, a, in a, a battle. In Jude chapter, well, it's only one chapter, but Jude verse 3. Jude is the little uh, one chapter book before the book of Revelations, the penultimate book of the scriptures, which means it's the next to the last book. Where this thing's going. Jude writes that he had a desire to speak of this wonderful salvation, this common salvation that we all share in Christ. He said, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, 
It was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. And, and that really, uh, that whole idea is it was once for all delivered to the saints. It was given all to us. The, the truth of the gospel, the truth of the word of God has been given to us that deals with the salvation that we have, but it also deals with the very fact that we are to contend earnestly for the faith that we are to have in Jesus Christ. And the word contend that Paul, that I'm sorry, Jude uses here is, is a word that was used, it was, a, it was a, 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 an athletic term. Much like it is today in the area of, of boxing and, and uh, uh, those, kind, those kinds of, uh, of sports where you contend for a crown, where you, know, you have a contender for, for uh, the, the belt or you have a contender for the prize. Well, what do you do to gain the prize? You have to fight. You have to contend. And we as believers in Jesus Christ are called to contend for the faith. But never were we called to contend against the faith. Never were we called to contend against the word of God. To contend against the truth of God. And to contend against the word of Jesus himself who said, I am coming quickly. So we have an enemy. Not one that we really enjoy having. But an enemy that can say from one side of their mouth, Oh yeah, we believe in the Lord. But we'll do everything they can to take away the word of God. That's an enemy of the cross. And we can't stand for that. What we can do is stand for the truth. And stand for Jesus. And stand until he comes. So lift up your heads. And keep looking up. Your redemption draws near. The Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sanhedrin the priests, the lawyers, the scribes, all of them should have been rejoicing when Jesus came. They wore the garb. They performed the rituals. But they were far from God. Draw near to God. James tells us, and he will draw near to you. And by the way, folks, our God, he's real. And our Lord, he's alive. And our Savior, he's coming again. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your goodness and mercy. We pray, Father, that what we take from this today, Lord, we will be encouraged to stand. And in standing, may we withstand, Lord, the darts of the enemy. 
And certainly, we're thankful for all that you give us to withstand those things. All that you give us as far as the armor of God. All that you give us, which is the word of God. And your presence and your spirit. Lord, you've made us well equipped. But may we stand with trust and faith and determination in knowing, Lord God, that we are completely and totally dependent upon you for all things. We surrender to these things today. We ask your blessing now upon all who have heard your word. Lord, may we be serious to continue to meditate upon it and apply these things to our daily walk, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Shall we stand? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Have a blessed, wonderful day in the Lord. May your days be filled with the goodness of God and the mercies of God because he gives them daily. And may you walk knowing that he goes with you, trust him to strengthen you, to encourage you, to heal you, and to use you for his glory until the day he comes. Amen? Amen. Amen.